I'm Helen Skelton and this is a special episode of the Clean Energy Revolution. In this podcast, I've been finding out about the steps we need to take on the path to net zero carbon emissions by 2050 and why decarbonising our energy system is vital in this. This time, I'm looking back on the COP26 conference that took place earlier this month in Glasgow. Nearly 200 countries, all of them with different economic situations, geographies, natural resources and political climates, came together with one collective goal, to tackle climate change and preserve our planet's future. Now that is no small task for a two-week conference. So what were the highlights of COP26 and where do we go from here? This conference was following up commitments made at a previous COP, where all the nations involved pledged to limit temperature rise to 2 degrees centigrade, but closer to 1.5 degrees. That was in the Paris Agreement. Nations had a five-year deadline and an extra year due to COVID-19 to work out how they'd reduce emissions and develop decarbonised solutions to our biggest greenhouse gas-emitting sectors, like energy, transport and the built environment. To look over the headlines from the conference, I caught up with Louise Clark on the final day. Louise has been working with the team at National Grid across the last 18 months as the COP26 manager. It's meant she's been across all of National Grid's input into COP. Louise, let's talk about the last fortnight. How has it been? It has been a bit of a roller coaster. It's been exciting and challenging and a lot of great stuff coming out of it and it has felt really really positive. So how has the conference been put together for everybody attending? All COPs are split into two zones so this is the 26th one that's why it's called COP26 so there's a blue zone which is managed by the UN the United Nations so it's where the negotiations happen which is the core of every COP governments come together and negotiate kind of legal agreements around how we're going to tackle climate change. The green zone is like the public-facing space, and that's very much been about showcasing what's going on in terms of tackling climate change, the action that's being taken on the ground. Loads of organisations have stands here, have talks here, brilliant events as well. And what about the conversations that you've been having with people? I am lucky enough to have been in the blue zone, but I've also been in the green zone too, so it's been a real mix. You know, I've been in some meetings with quite high-level people sitting in quite a lot of the panels with key decision makers and listening to them and then coming over to the green zone and having really great discussions with members of the public you know answering their questions that they have about the energy transition what's going to happen to the future of our energy and it's been really nice to have that absolute mix people from all over the world we've seen a lot of protesters around glasgow really interesting to hear what they're saying as you're going through the streets so it's certainly not just about action happening in the blue zone in the green zone glasgow itself is just transformed now this podcast is all about why energy matters on the road to net zero but energy underpins a whole load of different sectors and issues you know we're talking economic social resource-led but what are the headline actions that have come out of the conference so far So there have been some key agreements announced over the past couple of weeks. We saw over 100 countries agree to end deforestation by 2030. That was a really big one. We have seen something like that before, but this one has got some proper money behind it. So I think there's a really good chance that that could happen. And it's got Brazil in there, which is obviously the Amazon rainforest, um, one of the biggest areas of deforestation. So that's brilliant news. That's huge, though. Being realistic, how achievable do you think that goal is? 
I think it's a positive sign that they're willing to commit to it. Obviously, we need to see the action taken on the ground, but it's, it's, it's important not to underestimate the political signals and the, the fact that countries are willing to commit to something because when they haven't been before, that's actually a massive change. So that's really positive. So we've had the, the trees one. We've also had one on methane. So again, over 100 countries have agreed to cut methane emissions 30% by 2030. Methane is far more potent than carbon dioxide. It is a bit of a problem. So that's a really important deal. There's also a lot of methane that comes out through transporting gas and then it leaks. Lots of companies are trying to reduce that, including National Grid. So we've had that methane agreement. There has also been one on coal. So over 40 countries have come together to pledge no more burning coal. Now, it's a move forward. It's not quite where we want to be. Some, Some big coal producers are not on that list at the moment. China's not signed up, India's not signed up, the US not signed up. It's hoped they will join later. But I think it's also important not to underestimate that that is a big shift still. It doesn't cover everything, but it's a move in the right direction. We've had a great transport agreement. So there's been agreement across a lot of countries and companies that the leading markets in EVs will ban the use or the sale of internal combustion engines, so your petrol and diesel cars, by 2035, and that other markets will do it by 2040. So that's a, that's a massive move as well. Transport's a really big emitter. Actually, the other thing we've seen, which was a surprise announcement this week, was the US and China agreeing a deal to work together on areas of climate change. I don't think anyone expected that. Obviously, we need to see the detail of it. It needs to be implemented in proper action, but I think that's a really positive move. They are two of the kind of biggest emitters globally and really great to see them make that agreement and see the US back at the table. That is significant because given the tensions between those two powerhouses, you know, it would be okay to assume that climate might be the last thing on the agenda. It just shows that the world does see that we need to do something about it because they obviously still have these tensions, but they're willing to kind of separate climate out from that and work together collaboratively on that, regardless of what else is going on in the politics. So I think that's really positive. So surely nations wouldn't be committing to pledges without feeling they're achievable? Yeah, I think it's great to have these pledges. The thing now is to move those into actions and we need to see kind of short-term policy plans in place. There's a big gap at the moment between commitments and policy worldwide. So a lot of policy needs to come forward in the UK and elsewhere over the next few years in order to make that a reality. A lot of those commitments aren't binding. Not many countries are making those binding in their own countries and certainly the UNFCCC that runs the COP process doesn't make it binding but if we're seeing these commitments now they're only going to get more ambitious as we get closer and closer to the point where we need to take action really really urgently. You mentioned the need for clear policy from individual nations. Let's talk about the UK. How close is the UK government to giving clear signals for businesses who are actually going to deliver this on the ground. So I'm not talking about big pharma companies. I'm talking about tech companies, gas and heating engineers, plumbers, builders, for instance. How close are they to getting clear guidelines from the government? I think it's good to get that heat and building strategy out. We were waiting quite a long time for it, but it is out now finally, along with the net zero strategy that came out. And then we had a transport decarbonisation strategy a few weeks before. Um, That package, while it doesn't mean the policies are all in place yet, it is is a good move forward. So 
industries, businesses and markets can take those signals and kind of move things forward. So I think it's a step in the right direction, but let's see what it actually comes out with in terms of the policy that needs to come in, because there is still more that's needed. We at National Grid have already been doing a lot to explore the different heating options and we will continue to work with the UK government to let them know what kind of signals the market needs in order to make that change happen. We've got very different buildings across the UK. People live in really different places, rural, urban. We will need a whole range of solutions. So it's not just going to be heat pumps. It's not just going to be hydrogen. We're looking at other forms of decarbonised gas, like renewable natural gas as well, because we've already got kind of such an extensive existing gas transmission system. Can we use that going forward? There will be a lot more electric heating as well. And again, we're sort of ready to build the infrastructure needed to provide that capacity. There have been government schemes over the last few years to help people with insulating their homes. I think that really needs to ramp up. The pace of that is not happening fast enough. We've got very old housing stock in the UK and that's kind of the biggest change we can make is to just make all of that energy efficient. That's the first kind of action that should be taken and then you look at what you need to do to get the rest of the heating there and, and can have it be clean. What about consumers then? Because for that range of solutions, there needs to be more of a conversation, surely, between businesses and consumers. Yeah, I think we, we can't do this if we keep all the sectors in silos like they have been before. Like, As one example, energy and transport are totally connected in this transition. So if you want to buy an EV... It will not help the environment if the electricity in that car is produced from coal because it's dirty, so that's not helpful. So you have to clean up the electricity system in order to enable the kind of clean transport side of it when you're talking about electrification. And again, same with like the housing sector. You've got to bring that in with energy and transport as well because if people want EVs, how do they get charging infrastructure on their homes? It all comes together and it all has to become much more of an integrated system. We've got to work together with people in other industries obviously with governments with local governments but and with the public because a lot of this is going to take a change in behavior as well and that's really what we are trying to do we all are trying to clean up energy as quickly as possible and affordably as possible for people so when you've got that common goal it's not that difficult to collaborate energy just underpins everything so we have a role to collaborate with kind of anyone who is interested in cleaning up our futures We need to halve emissions globally in the next decade, or less than a decade, by 2030, in order to keep ourselves on track for that 1.5 degree warming target, which is a big ask. Louise, thank you for that fascinating stuff. So the government has given the signals. Now it's time for businesses, councils, organisations, all of the different sectors we've touched on to work together to collaborate and bring those greener options to market so that us, the public, can make better lifestyle choices. But I want to know more about what collaboration actually means. The COP Green Zone was home to various principal partners, so the big businesses and organisations like National Grid, who can influence the success of government policies and bring us more sustainable options as consumers. Let's hear from a few of them now. My name is Ben Faulkner. I work for Hitachi Rail. Hitachi are one of the principal sponsors of COP26. So I think people maybe when they think of Hitachi know us as electronics company or a technology company. 
Transport and mobility is a big area for Hitachi. As I said, I'm from Hitachi Rail myself. We have over 285 trains in the UK running around now. We're doing a partnership with some of our customers to fit some batteries on trains to remove diesel engines. So if we can make train travel even more environmentally friendly, then that's obviously a real plus and hopefully can encourage more people onto the trains because they know it's an even more eco option, really. One of the really cool projects we're doing is in the rainforest and where we've got sensors up in the, in the canopy and it's listening out for sounds of changes of animal behaviour and based on that it can tell if people are moving into the jungle so it's like an early warning system on potential logging activity. The technology is very simple but it's the use of the data that's really interesting and that's protecting people on the ground and it's protecting the animals and protecting the rainforest and we all know how important the rainforest is for the planet. But then one of the other activities that's really cool is I don't know if it's the official name, but they say backpacks for bees. So it's little sensors on bees and then using, again, the data is understanding their movement and maybe it gives us a little bit more insight into their habits, where they're thriving, where they're suffering. And again, it's that clever use of data to make informed decisions so then we can actually, you know, again, help protect them or help promote bees. If we don't have the bees around, the planet's not long from falling apart. Technology isn't the answer. Technology is a tool and something to use. You know, we need to look at, do we all need our own private cars? Do I need to take that journey by plane? You know, and, and make a better informed decision. And I think the more people that make those better decisions, we're all going to be moving forward in the right direction. Thank you, Ben. I love that idea that tech and data is there to enable better decision making rather than solving the problems for us. So what about non-technology-led businesses? Now, you might not have heard of Reckit, but they own brands like Vanish, Dettol, Neurofen, Durex. Their challenge is to reduce the environmental impact of their products in the way they're sourced and the way we use them. I'm David Crofts. I look after sustainability for Reckitt, the household and health company. It's been a shame that we haven't seen a health day here at COP. Climate change, as well as having that huge problematic detriment to the planet, it's also starting to have impacts on people's health around the world. Whether that's acute through things like floods and fires or air pollution, or whether it's increased temperatures, or whether it's different forms of disease, zoonotic disease, we're seeing rising incidences of malaria and dengue fever, for example, or the impacts on crops that causes different problems through food, the absence of food and famine. The impact of planetary change on people's health is critical, and we need to see climate change as part of the public health agenda. 20 million people a day put our products on their shelves at home. And how do we persuade them to use less energy and less water? Turning the temperature of the washing machine down, using less water when you dishwash, washing your hands even with cooler water, all makes a big difference to the energy that people use at home. That's a big chunk of our total emissions. So if we can help people around the world do that, we make a big difference. It would be a disaster if we only thought in narrow silos. And so, for example, the work that we're doing with rubber farmers, where we get latex from our biggest brands, is a great example of this. We're encouraging them to work and have stronger agronomy so that not only do they get the best quality latex, which is what we need, they're also regenerating ecosystems through the farming methods. And that might also lead to carbon capture and they get more money because we're also paying a fair rubber premium. So it's trying to connect a climate change and a carbon agenda, an ecosystem and biodiversity agenda, and a social agenda. You have to join all those three things up if you're going to be really successful, particularly the social one. 
because at the end of the day we talk about systems change a lot at places like COP but at the heart of systems are people and unless we really understand what will motivate people what will help them make different choices to support a low carbon low water future then some of the technical work will not carry through. It is a valuable point that climate change is a public health issue. I'll be talking more about that later in this episode. Let's hear from another surprising stakeholder in climate change, your local high street bank. What has the banking sector got to do with challenging climate change? My name is Rishi Madlani and I'm head of climate and sustainable finance at NatWest Group. We have a key role to play, whether it's decarbonising the mortgages through our green mortgage products, whether it's helping SMEs to find solutions, or whether it's green bonds like the one we helped National Grid with last year. So green mortgage is a product to encourage people to buy and upgrade the energy efficiency of their homes. It's tagged to the EPC rating. We need to be encouraging our customers, helping them, but also making their homes warmer and cheaper to heat. We have customers like you and I, to SMEs, to large corporates, who all need to be decarbonising. And this is the bit that really I'm taking away from COP is actually where we might not get all the leadership we need from our political leaders. We as businesses, we as regions can come together to fix some of these problems. So today we have, for example, Joe from uh, Beauty Kitchen doing some amazing products around reusable uh, bottles for beauty products. Absolutely fantastic. Something we all think about, thinking about how much waste we have. And these are the sort of businesses that can connect up. And with the bank's network, we can connect up our larger customers with SMEs and help find some of the solutions that will tackle things like the circular economy and, and, and waste. And that's where we really can add value. It's the convening power. OK, so if you haven't heard the phrase circular economy before, Rishi's talking about funding businesses that work in a model of reusing, recycling or regenerating resources. In the same way the fashion industry is looking at recycling fabrics and dyes to put back into the new clothes that we might buy from the shops. We've heard plenty about how innovative technology can offer us greener, smarter solutions for reducing emissions. And with businesses collaborating to fund and provide more options for us to consume, that makes for a pretty exciting economic picture for a green future. Let's bring it back to energy though, because each and every business and endeavour relies upon energy going green to keep the wheels turning. I'm joined by Steve Thompson, National Grid's Environmental Sustainability Manager, to find out how energy and the environment are innately connected. Steve, thank you for joining me. Right, take us back to basics. Global warming, what is it? Why is it a problem? The Earth's average temperature is about 15 degrees centigrade, so that's around 59 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, But it's been much higher and lower in the past. Um, Now, there are natural fluctuations in the climate, but scientists say temperatures are now rising faster than at many other times um, in the course of history. And that's linked to the greenhouse effect, which basically describes how the Earth's atmosphere traps some of the sun's energy. Solar energy radiating back to space from the Earth's surface is absorbed by greenhouse gases and then re-emitted in all directions. And this heats the, the lower part of our atmosphere and the surface of the planet. And without this the Earth would actually be a lot colder, around 30 degrees C colder than it is today. But we are now adding to that natural greenhouse effect. So gases such as carbon dioxide and methane released into the atmosphere trap more energy and increase the temperature. 
over time, large quantities of these gases have built up in the atmosphere. Human activity is unequivocally the cause of global warming and climate change. And this has a, a huge range of impacts on the climate system and ecosystems um, and people. Um, so rising ocean levels, more extreme weather events such as flooding, droughts and storms, etc. So to avoid the worst impacts of climate change, we need to limit global warming to around 2 degrees C above pre-industrial temperatures, so the, the, the temperature of the planet before the, the Industrial Revolution, and if possible, to limit that to 1.5 degrees C. Does it look like that will happen now? So at the moment, we're not on track for meeting this. And as we record this podcast, the Climate Action Tracker, who are looking at the commitments that are coming out of the current conference, calculate that the world is heading for around 2.4 degrees C of warming and based on, on the commitments made to date. But the good news is, if we can go further and cut emissions to net zero by the middle of the century and remove them from the atmosphere, we would see global warming fall to around 1.4 degrees by the end of the century. Talk us through the consequences for the planet and people if we don't limit global warming. We're already seeing the consequences. Wildfires in parts of the US and Canada, as an example, and more frequent and extreme storms. And that's without getting into some of the potential longer-term social impacts and demographic impacts where parts of the world become inhospitable and you could see mass migration of people and any number of other impacts related to food production and and areas of agriculture. So how does energy in particular contribute to that global picture of carbon emissions and what is it doing to our atmosphere? Around three quarters of global greenhouse gas emissions come from the energy sector That's mainly the power, transport and heat sectors. Uh, That's why our role is so important at the heart of transitioning towards towards those cleaner energy systems. The environment is an economic issue though, isn't it? That's a great question. Um, Nature provides us with something called ecosystem services. And those are things such as improved air quality, pollination, natural flood defences, natural carbon sequestration. Um, And all those are beneficial to the way we live our lives. The connected nature of many ecosystems and environmental issues means that there are a huge amount of risks for species, for ecosystems, and those risks are driven by climate change. So you look at Australia as an example, bushfires there in recent years have pushed around 100 species close to extinction. Corals that support a multitude of marine life uh, have suffered from from coral bleaching um, through increased temperatures. That's just a specific example, but that interconnected nature that I talked about is why it's really important that we focus on broader aspects of sustainability beyond just carbon reduction and ensure we also look at the impacts on biodiversity and other areas of the natural environment. We can't look at these areas in isolation. They are absolutely interconnected um, and we need to, to address all of them. Thank you, Steve. National Grid were joined by Scottish Power in the COP Green Zone. We heard more about the conversations they'd been having with visitors. Hi, so my name is Julie Keogh. I am Brand and Reputation Director with Scottish Power. Okay, so this is our fully immersive exhibition stand within the Green Zone. And really the theme and the message that we are trying to convey here is all about harnessing the power of nature. And from our perspective in our business, it's our focus on sun, wind and water, because that's essentially the kind of three core areas our business focuses on. 
really for us, COP26 isn't a platform for us to to start to, to have a conversation about climate change. It's really a continuation for us because it's something that we've been doing for the past 20 years. Everybody that's coming in, that's visiting us, you know, in the green zone at our stand, we've seen a huge array of people coming in here, whether it's, you know, general public, whether it's school children, whether it's delegates from the blue zone, whether it's the, the you know, journalists and media. Everybody really is showing this, this same appetite and desire for change. And it's just really sparked off huge conversations. And, and the, the COP26 is maybe just persuaded people to think a little differently. People haven't known that actually, you know, we only produce all of our energy from renewable sources. So, you know, again, that sparked off a lot of conversations. So I think there is a genuine interest. I think people genuinely now do demand a bit more of us. And so I think it's just been a great opportunity for us to actually have that conversation. You know, we are hoping that we will set very ambitious targets, but really what comes after that is the frameworks that we all need to be able to, to really go at the pace that we have to, to deliver against climate change. Meanwhile, another Scottish energy company, SSE, was sharing a behind-the-scenes look at renewable energy projects and how hydropower pump storage can help offer a more stable supply. My name is Glenn Barber and I am Group Director of Corporate Affairs for SSE. We're here in our Green Zone exhibition at the moment, trying to engage delegates with Dogger Bank, which is the world's largest offshore wind farm, which we are building with our partners at Equinor and ENI at the moment. And for us, that's a great symbol of climate action on a massive scale, showing what you can achieve with the right policy signals in place from government, with enough investment and enough engineering, innovation to deliver something that's going to make a huge, huge difference to the carbon footprint of the UK's power system. I'm standing in front of a, a scale model of a pumped storage hydro dam. SSE has, has a, a number of hydro power stations. Its heritage is in in hydro in the highlands and pump storage in particular is a technology that we think is really interesting because it's not a new technology as i said it's quite old what it provides is flexibility renewables are fantastic but they are variable in their nature it's not always windy so what you need is something that can help balance out those peaks and troughs and be flexible and you know historically that flexibility has been provided by coal and gas-fired power stations it still is with gas to an extent so we need to find cleaner ways of providing that flexibility. And what you can do with pump storage is when you've got excess electricity on the system because it's really windy and demand is, is low, rather than waste that renewable electricity, you can use it to effectively drive water up a hill from a lower reservoir to a higher one, which is what the model behind me shows. And it effectively stores potential energy in the form of the water for a time when maybe it's less windy and demand is high and you suddenly need to switch something on to, to provide that instant clean electricity. And you do that by releasing the water from the upper reservoir, it turns a turbine on its way down and, and hey presto. And you, you typically retain something like 90% of the, of the electricity. So it's, it's, it's really fascinating technology and it's got a bigger role to play in a renewables-led energy system in the future. We've got a huge amount of projects that we would like to crack on and, and build. We hope that with the momentum that's been built up around COP and the increasing levels of ambition from the UK and also globally, it will create the conditions where we will be able to build even more, even bigger, even faster. More, bigger, faster. That seems to be something that we have heard a lot about in the last few weeks. It's great to hear what's happening as businesses and government push towards our net zero future. 
But what did members of the public visiting the Green Zone have to say about their impressions of COP and their hopes for the future? Just been sort of enjoying things with children, which has kind of put a different angle on things perhaps. We went to the march as a family and then come here to the Science Centre to kind of experience from a child's point of view, I suppose, and all of this is kind of for our children and our children's children and yeah. just sort of makes you focus on the future. My kids are off school today, yes, yeah, so I've just taken them to the Green Zone to have a look around. Them. For me, obviously, there's some, some good targets being set, but uh, we really need to support the developers of the technology and the project developers who are trying to put in place whatever it is, renewable energy technology or and obviously the reforestation is another big thing. Biodiversity, there's a lot of work to be done. I think it's amazing, it's my first COP. I really believe that educators, researchers, you know, have to be here to take part in such events so we can adjust our education, our research for the benefit of the planet. I set up a, a sort of a green group in the town where I live and a lot of people there were really concerned about you know the climate change and stuff so I've just cycled up well from Leeds over five days yeah a lot of the technology and the the, the solutions to the problems exist and it's how do we then pass on the message to the wider community you know you might have a limited amount of money you can, you can use to do the right thing and it's well what's the best impact that you can have I think that's a real challenge with it because I think people think about different aspects of it separately and we all need to be part of it like the behaviour change angle is going to be huge and but people aren't thinking but they're just thinking about like the loss that there is but actually there's so much to gain if we can pull together health economy climate if you can bring all of that into the the better future I hope there is courage and I hope there's action I think there's a lot of talk there's a lot of you know things coming through from it and I think it's really good to have something like this and it feels like there's lots of different people here from different backgrounds but is that going to translate into something meaningful at the end of it? I'm from California. California obviously has been devastated by wildfires uh, very much like other parts of the world uh, including uh, Australia of course uh, of recent but many other places. My in-laws have gotten used to every single year red flag warnings and needing to evacuate my daughter can't play outside a certain number of days out of the year. We have seen apocalyptic orange and red atmosphere for days on end in the San Francisco Bay Area. These pictures are just kind of, uh, they look like they're out of movies. We're here at COP26, we're trying to make a difference. We're trying to become more educated, push on the levers on the rest of the country as well. So we're thinking about different ways of doing that. We've talked government, we've talked businesses, but what we haven't touched on yet is how wealthier and more developed nations can support those with fewer resources to reach their goals. At COP 12 years ago in Copenhagen, wealthier nations committed to providing 100 billion US dollars annually to support those with fewer resources to reach their net zero goals. We're still not there though. Social justice and fairness is a key part of the energy transition, both here in the UK and further afield. I'm joined by Badar Khan, the president of National Grid US, to find out how this is moving forwards. 
But uh, at COP26, you hosted a panel on equity and access in the clean energy transition. Why is social justice a core issue at the heart of environmental debates? We're talking about getting to net zero emissions across uh, the whole of society over the matter of the next 10, 20 and 30 years. That is a, that is a game-changing shift. That is a society-wide transition. And I think the reason why folks are focused on fairness and, you know, environmental justice is because, you know, when you look back over, over history, there's been a segment of society, so disadvantaged communities, people of color in the United States, who are often left behind out of societal-wide transformations. And people are focused on making sure that that doesn't happen this time around. And I think that's why it's such a core issue in conversations that we're having here at COP26. We talk about a fair and an affordable energy transition, but what would this actually look like? Ensuring that there is a a fair and equitable transition means for us ensuring that every segment of society gets the benefits of this clean energy transition. And so when we think about the transition, we break it down into three areas where we enable society-wide emissions reduction, and that's decarbonizing energy supply, that's decarbonizing transportation, and decarbonizing heat. We need to make sure that as we're doing that, every segment of society benefits. So for example, in delivering clean transport, making sure that our EV programs help those in our communities that can't afford their own car, but they should still be able to get the benefits of clean air. So working with municipal authorities to help electrify municipal buses or school districts, electrifying school districts. If you can't afford your own electric vehicle, making sure that charging infrastructure isn't just being placed on private driveways, but in publicly accessible locations. For decarbonizing energy supply, one of the first things that we look at is making sure that people are able to save money and by lowering their energy consumption. And actually, National Grid operates in states where we are the leaders in energy efficiency programs, you know, providing incentives for customers to lower their energy bills by reducing their consumption. The reality is most of those incentives go to folks who own their homes rather than rent them. But we also know that disproportionately more black and brown communities rent rather than own. And so we have a huge, I think, opportunity and responsibility to address the home ownership inequity that exists in the United States, at least in part by ensuring our programs specifically target those that rent or or actually maybe even don't meet financing qualifications. That's an example of equity in the clean energy transition. We also know that a lot of private developers aren't able to put solar and battery technology for people who don't meet certain income or or other qualifying criteria. And so we're working on a resilient neighborhoods program that's putting in uh, that kind of technology in neighborhoods that are environmental justice communities who don't meet the criteria that developers require. These ensure that those communities are more resilient to some of the extreme weather that we're seeing. For building heat, that's not just incentives for low-income heating programs, but it's also making sure that heating is affordable over time. How can we help poorer or developing nations embrace a decarbonised energy system while supporting growth? Well, first, I think that it's important to recognise what developing countries are saying to the developed countries. One, 
They're saying, we didn't cause this problem, you did. Second, they're saying that actually, even though we didn't cause this problem, you know, we will feel the impacts of it, of climate change, as much or greater than you. And I think thirdly, you know, because of the first two, you need to help us. And so I think that's been a part of the Paris Agreement. And I think it's a part of you know, a lot of the, co the collaboration and the dialogue that's taken place since then. As part of it is about money, uh, so an amount of investment that's provided from developed to developing nations. But I think it's also around innovation and technology in areas like agriculture, urban transformation, you know, technology and innovation in all of these areas and others that actually helps to potentially leapfrog developing nations in terms of these sectors beyond where developed countries are. Thank you, Bada, and thank you for listening to this episode of the Clean Energy Revolution. A lot of people we've heard from seem to share a hope that the conversations that took place at the COP26 conference can be the beginning of the next phase of our path to net zero. Yes, there's debate over how closely we can make that global limit to 1.5 degrees, but it does still seem to be within our sights. Paired with that, coptimism is a pretty universal wish to turn all those conversations and pledges into real action. And given that every nation has its own set of challenges, be those political, economic, geographic and social, to overcome on the path to net zero, it's clear that now is the time to keep up the momentum on a global scale. Although we've heard a commitment to the phasing down of coal rather than the phasing out from nations of the world, National Grid is forging ahead towards a clean and renewable energy future where it operates. So where can we all act? Governments need to turn their strategies into guidelines and policies. Businesses need to collaborate, continue to innovate and compete to offer the cleanest and the most affordable solutions. And as consumers, we need to listen, to talk and to make choices as to how we live our lives. From the way we manage our homes and buildings to the kinds of technologies and products we might have as options in the future. Next time, I'll be back with stories from the homes of the future. What sort of technology is on the table now? What kind of options might be on offer? And how might we be living 10, 20 or even 30 years from now? I'm Helen Skelton. I'll see you next time.